Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about radiation oncology with our new co-host, Dr. Susan Higgins. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. First of all, it's fantastic to have you on the show. I have to say that the couple of shows we've recorded together, uh, you know, especially you as a newbie, I, you just like really add a great dimension uh, to the whole dialogue. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. You're a radiation oncologist. Yeah. So when people hear the word radiation oncologist, they, they get confused because a lot of people in the public don't know exactly what radiation oncologists are. Um, they don't even know quite a bit about radiation. Madame um, Curie, right? Right, <laughs> Madame Curie. Um, and actually, it, it all started there. Um, but, you know, if you look at the three sort of pillars of cancer therapy, there are surgical oncologists. People know surgeons. They're very familiar with that. There's medical oncology. People generally understand chemo. what medical oncologists do in general systemic therapies like chemo. Um, but we're, we're the third part, and we treat over one half of the people who have cancer. Um and we basically, I tell people, we sort of have targeted therapy in that we use radiation uh, x-rays or high energy x-rays to treat cancers. And uh, we also use radiation sources. And you alluded, uh, alluded to Madame Curie. And that, that's sort of where it all started, actually. Um, she discovered radium, which was a radiation source that gives off what we call gamma rays, which are just x-rays. Um, and some of the most, some of the earliest radiation therapy was actually done with some of these sources. The European physicians discovered that when you place these sources right near a tumor, like a cervical cancer, you can actually uh, cure the tumor. And the other half of that equation is the other half of what we do, which is basically the high energy x-rays that were discovered by Rentkin in 1896. And he was doing uh, experiments with electricity and figured out that these x-rays pass through tissue. So it really did all start back way back when with Madame Curie and Rentkin. It's really interesting to me that people, uh, uh, cancer patients, uh, including some really educated ones um, uh, that I talk to and friends of mine, um, call their radiation oncologists their radiologists. Radiologists. <laughs> and, and it's interesting do you, because... Do you think of yourself that way? Not, not, not right? real. Well, there, it's interesting because there's a history and then a practicality to it. So the history is way, way back. Radiation oncology as a specialty came from radiology. And they were initially the training programs were together in the 60s, but then diverged in the 70s. Yeah, that's a few years ago. Yeah, a few. <laughs> and... Um, and basically, as we became our separate specialty and went our own way, you know, for many, many years, we've been separate in, from radiologists. But the part of it that's still part of our practical day-to-day -day life is that we as radiation oncologists, because we do therapy that's focused on specific organs, specific parts of your anatomy, we still 
know and do a lot of um, work with the imaging, our imaging colleagues, the radiologists. So we look at every day MRI, PET scan, mammograms, all of those things come into our practice. So most of us are very well versed when we um, have to see a patient, we are there sort of on the spot looking at their images um, pretty much all the time. And isn't it true that some of your machines that direct the radiology, uh, I'm sorry, direct the radiation actually are based on CAT scans or MRIs or am I making that up? No, so, you know, the current trend now is to use a lot of imaging to guide our therapy and even to use that imaging real time when we're doing the therapy. So we have people that come in for treatment and we have a treatment plan mm -hmm. and we have exact measurements of their anatomy, where their tumor is, and we can use some of the imaging while they're on the table being treated to guide our therapy, which makes it even more precise and uh, effective. So, I mean, it's really, uh, I think to, to watch these things, just how the gantries move around, I mean, it's, it's it's pretty cool to, to watch. I mean, as an outsider and kind of a layperson in this, I'm pretty impressed with the technology. And, and you get very precise targeting for some of these things, right? Right, so, you know, again, incorporating the imaging allows us to really see sort of a 3D model of, of the patient, and we can then use that for planning. And what is really fun part of my job is the technical part where we can basically get a CAT scan um, take a patient who has, let's say, a breast malign malignancy. Um, I treat a lot of breast cancer. They come in, we do a CAT scan, we have then all the measurements, um, and we can take our treatment planning system, which is a very sophisticated software system, and decide which beams we use, what angles they come from, um, what strength the beam is, and really uh, give that person a very specific plan for their specific tumor in their body. So it's all about the imaging and planning that make radiation so precise. And you have to work with physicists, is that right? Or somebody who really understands the physics of all this stuff? Or, or is that part of your training as well? So it, it's um, one of the other part, parts of our job that's very gratifying is that there's really a team behind radiation, um, thera radiation therapy. When you look at the the discipline or the day-to-day -day practice. We have the physician who basically is doing uh, our work in the clinic, but then behind the scenes, we're doing the planning with dosimetrists who are very highly trained, and they work with us in a very, very close uh, team setting to get all of that planning done. Um, and we know some of the software, they know some of the doctor part, but it has to come together as a team to make it all happen. And in your training is, um I mean, do you actually have to do a lot of sort of classwork book learning about the various kind of uh, physical properties and energy and all that, in addition to kind of usual clinical training that you would think of in, in men, many residency programs? Yeah, so um, part of this planning is knowing the physics of radiation. Yeah. And so we have, I tell people we're sort of the geeks and that we have a lot of math. We call you that. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> Behind our backs, but also to our face. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> but basically, we have a lot of training in math and physics, and our written boards especially are very heavy on that because that's the fundamental uh, science that is underneath all of what we do. Yeah, it's amazing. and. How do you choose, you know, you've got these different kind of uh, radiation sources and machines, and how do you select the modality that's appropriate for a particular kind of tumor? Does it depend on where it is or what the intent is, if it's curative or not curative? Or Right, so, you know, I guess the, 
the paradigm we use is, you know, respect what we call normal tissue, tissue tolerance, meaning each organ in the body can only tolerate so much radiation to a certain percentage of that organ while trying to treat the cancer. So what we're always doing is in our minds as clinicians, we're coming up with a plan of what type of radiation we're going to use, how we're going to direct it to the target, meaning the tumor, um, and basically uh, choosing with that planning system how to mold or shape the beams so that we avoid the normal organs. Hmm. I know in the old days, you used to make a lot of molds to like shield things and stuff. Is that still part of the deal? Yeah. So you, you know, I think indirectly mentioned uh, something about the gantry. There's a thing called a linear accelerator. It's a very, very large, fancy machine that allows us to deliver the beam of radiation, again, a high energy x-ray, um, at various angles. And the shaping which used to be made with lead blocks, yeah. <laughs> um, is now done within the treatment machine. So you can, and with that machine, basically deliver the beam from various angles, uh, and you can modify the strength of the beam and, again, the actual shape of the beam coming out of the machine in you know so many different ways. It allows us now to do things that we couldn't do uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Hmm. And how do you know that the machine is doing it right? So we have multiple levels of quality control. And, and I think that we are one of the most sort of self-conscious <laughs> subspecialties. I bet. Uh, I had a There's not much room for error, right? That's right. And I had a colleague who had a saying, you know, radiation won't give, once given can never be taken back. Right. So... Before we go ahead with even the first treatment, there are very, uh, there's a very complex set of um, processes that we call quality assurance that have to happen. Um, so in the planning, there are checks and second checks and third checks. And for certain things we do, we actually even use a thing called a phantom. And uh, you may have heard of this. It's basically you irradiate something that's tissue equivalent. In other words, it's like putting uh, a virtual person on the table, and you actually measure the dose that goes into that phantom. And that's really essential for a process we call IMRT, which is a very, very nice, sophisticated way of giving radiation to multiple areas in the body um, with multiple beams. But the only way to really know that it's being done the right way is to do that study with the phantom before you ever start treatment. Hmm. So you're treating a virtual patient before you ever start treatment. Is this like the crash dummies from the... Uh, right, right. It's our version of the crash dummy, but, you know, very essential because that with IMRT, that is the, you know, really the only way to know exactly what dose is going to be delivered. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. I, I'm, I was wondering, you know, in medical school, it seems to me that not many students, maybe I'm wrong about this, but not it's not part of the regular curriculum to be exposed to radiation oncology. And uh, neither is it necessarily uh, usual to be exposed to medical oncology. But of course, people aren't making a a decision at the at the time of residency when they're graduating medical school to become an oncologist. They might think they're interested in being a medical oncologist, but they've got three years of internal medicine training ahead of them. Whereas for you guys, it's pretty much decided out of med school, right? To for many people, anyway. So, so how does that work? That's an interesting story because we um, people who trained in the era that I trained in. Not we, so very long ago. Not very long ago. Um, <laughs> felt that uh, less we, every day, right? Yes, <laughs> more exactly. recent every day. More recent every day. <laughs> um, 
and we used to think that, and it was true at that time when I trained, radiation oncology was a well-kept secret. And what we meant by that is it's a very gratifying profession that we all love. And a lot of people did not know about it because, again, most things then were word of mouth. Now, with the advent of the internet and social media and the kinds of connections that residents, that medical students have, we now have, and I, I know this because I'm basically co-director of our residency program. Are you getting a lot of likes? Is that what you're telling me? Well, we have people, let's put it this way, it's gotten to the point that people are coming to me as first-year medical students. This is almost unheard of in the past. For different reasons. Number one, because they hear about it. Their colleagues are basically blogging and tweeting, and they're on <laughs> sites like WebMD. Well, actually, Doctor, I think it's called Doctor MD or something, where they all communicate. Um, and people now have found out about radiation, and we are now the most competitive subspecialty of all the medical subspecialties. That's crazy. It's really crazy. And uh, we get. For, we usually have two to three residency spots each year. We get over 200 applications for oh the my two gosh. or three spots. I know. It's very hard to get into. So do you find that the medical students, are? do they come and do a rotation with you, or are they able to do that to kind of try it on for size, or is it kind of hope for the best? Well, it's interesting, again, because they've sort of guided each other along this path, but they do. Usually they'll pick their top two or three programs, and they take their elective time to spend with us in part because they want to learn about the specialty, but again, it's so competitive. Show off a They want bit. to, you know, the FaceTime and interacting with the people that they're going to be seeing in the future is really important. Yeah, I mean, that's not unique in your subspecialty, right? Right, I mean, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. just the nature of if you want to be competitive, you kind of yeah. got to get your face out there. Well, that's really, um, uh, it's a very fascinating area and one that I, I deeply respect. Uh, and we've got a lot more to talk about, but it's already time to take a short break for a medical minute. So let's do that, and I hope the audience will please stay tuned to learn more information about radiation oncology with my co-host, Dr. Susan Higgins. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm here with my new co-host and guest tonight, Dr. Susan Higgins. We're talking about radiation oncology. Susan, I think what, one of the things that um, I hear a lot from patients when, when I tell them that, gee, we're going to have the radiation doctors uh, come give an opinion about whether radiation might be uh, an important part or a helpful part of your therapy People seem to worry a lot about side effects, and I don't know if it's from the bad old, bad old days, uh, but can you speak to that? I mean, it, it, is radiation very toxic to patients? 
So um, I'm glad you brought up that point about the bad old, bad old days. We were just talking about some of the innovations and techniques that we're using now, again, to spare normal tissue. And, and people think about the experiences that their fathers or grandfathers had with radiation, and it really is an apples oranges. Things are so much more sophisticated in terms of the delivery of radiation um, and shielding or sparing of normal tissue that the side effect profile for many people now is is different than it was even a few years ago. Mm. And for each different type of tumor, each different site in the body, the side effect profile varies. Um, and I know sometimes people talk to friends before they see me right. or uncles or aunts who have had different but similar cancers, but no, no one's exactly the same. Right. So stay off the internet, or if you're gonna, or read what you read on the internet with a grain of salt, and realize that you're a unique person, and talk to the doctor, right, about. Right. Exactly. What we spend a lot of time doing in our consultation, and and I think as a radiation oncologist, many of us enjoy educating the patient. Mm -hmm because it takes away a lot of the fear and myths that surround the word radiation. People are very fearful of that word and what it implies. Right. So we can use that time during our consultation to basically discuss the treatment plan, but then also discuss side effects and the support measures. There are always side effects, but again, our team of nurses, nutritionists, um, we're all here to take care of those side effects. And just like in medical oncology, we have a lot more things to manage side effects with chemo, same thing with radiation. Sure, and you've got particular staff who are so familiar with uh, with radiation patients, right? Your, your nurses and Right, even the therapists who work at the machine. Right, I'm sure they've got a lot of... Uh a lot of experience uh, as well. Do they see the patients? I guess they see the patients as they're being treated day after day, right? Right, and that, again, is a great part of the, the team concept. As my patients are going through treatment, um, we're having our therapists, many of whom have 20 years of, of doing radiation therapy, they're there, they're really- They're are, way older than you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, they basically see the, or can anticipate some of the things that are gonna happen, again, because we're very familiar. The side effects are very predictable, and they're our first line of defense. They may call me and say, you know, Mrs. Smith, her skin's looking a little red, and then we immediately address those things. The nurses are the next level, and then I also see our my patients, like every radiation oncologist, at least once a week. Mm. So, and, and it's an interesting thing because many people that come into a, a treatment center and are with us for five weeks uh, really enjoy that support system sure. that they have, which again, the therapist, the nurses, the nutritionist, the physician, they're seeing us actually very frequently. So there's you know a very nice support system for them. Yeah, that's great. Are there certain cancers that are particularly yeah, in which or for which radiation is particularly useful? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there must be, right? Yeah, um, if you look at any radiation oncology center, the, the most common cancers that we play a big role in treating are breast, uh, prostate, lung cancer. Um, and then there's the you know usual smattering of sort of patients with head and neck cancer and other less common cancers. But um, I treat breast cancer patients and patients with gynecologic malignancies, and radiation plays a very large role in both of those um, diseases. Um, so we can discuss that a little bit. I just uh, we 
we wanted to discuss breast cancer a little bit, um, and I think that that is an area where we're making a lot of uh, improvements and great strides towards actually reducing the number of people who get radiation. Is that right? Because we're, we're finding that certain subsets of patients, including women over 70, may do fine with some hormonal therapy and a lumpectomy and not even need the next step. So I think in terms of breast cancer, we're actually really refining who needs, who doesn't need, um, and also how much they need. Hmm. And I, I understand that uh, for certain uh, gynecological malignancies, uh, there's different ways you can give radiation as well. and and. Um, Sometimes I, th I think they, they do intravaginal radiation. Right. I'm not sure if that's still true versus external beam. Right. So um, radiation plays a large role in many gynecologic, uh, the management of gy gynecologic cancers, but especially cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. And this is something that has about a 50-year history. A radiation given as external beam radiation over several weeks, again, the X-ray type, plus the internal treatments, which are like the radium seeds that Madame Curie uh, basically discovered many years ago, this sil similar process is still used. We're putting radiation seeds right near the cancer. And with radiation, you can cure a large majority of the patients with, with cervical cancer. Of course, we hope that uh, all the young kids are getting um uh, the vaccine against uh, papillom human papillomavirus so that we'll have less and less cervical cancer. Uh, yes, that's right. right. And I think that that wave of people who have the vaccine and the incidence of cervical cancer basically being reduced by that process is coming, but it's not quite here yet. Right. So we're still dealing with people who grew up in the wild 60s and... Uh, that's right. Got around a little bit. That's right. And so, you know, in head and neck cancer and uh, GYN cancer, we're seeing a lot of HPV-related related cancers. And, you know, some of them are not found early because people uh, in certain regions of the country don't have access to health care. Mm. So That's changing. That's changing, right, with uh, Obamacare. And, and we are seeing more people coming in, but it's still, a, it's interesting because I've been treating patients for 20 years and it's not where I would like it to be. I think right. we still have a lot of improvement in that um, in that arena, which is healthcare access. Yeah. So Susan, let's say I've, I'm a patient with a, a newly diagnosed cancer. I mean, how would I know that, that I should call you? I mean, how, why would I, how would I guess that maybe radiation should be part of, I'm kind of lost. I just don't know, how do I navigate this? So when you get a diagnosis, you're usually introduced to a medical oncologist who, I tell people if we're a baseball team, the medical oncologist is sort of like the manager. And he's going to put together the lineup. So when he needs me to give a consultation or consider radiation, I tell them it's like the pitcher coming out of the bullpen. So I come out of the bullpen and when he asks me if I'm going to give treatment, um, we see each other for six weeks or so. Again, we do the consultation, determine whether you need radiation and how much of it, how many weeks. Um, but then you get actually go back to your medical, oncologi medical oncologist after that because, again, he's the manager. And he sends you to all the specialists that you need to, to see and, and really pulls it all together. Hmm. And in some tumor types, this will sometimes happen all at the same time or in a multidisciplinary well, kind of clinic. Do you, do, do you participate in those? Yeah, so, you know, again, we feel that the state-of-the-art management of most of these malignancies is in a multidisciplinary setting where we have a tumor board. And, for example, at Breast Tumor Board, we have our breast surgeons, our medical oncologists, the radiation oncologists, 
and pathologists and radiologists, we actually, again, have a team where we can actually take each patient's case, review it, and everyone can basically come up with a game plan for that patient's care, which is going to be relatively comprehensive. We'll talk about the surgery they need. We'll talk about whether or not they need chemotherapy and whether or not they need radiation therapy. And usually our medical oncology colleagues are at those meetings. Um, and we all participate in that process. And does that get recorded and put into the patient's chart somehow, or how does that work? So again, most of the time there's a point person Mm -hmm. that presents the case, and then we'll take that information back to the patient the next week during consultation and say, we discussed your case last week, we all think you need, and then they'll outline the management plan. So, for example, for someone with breast cancer, they may say, you know, you need a lumpectomy, then you need to see the radiation oncologist, and then come back to see me, meaning the medical oncologist. And as part of the uh, multidisciplinary plan, whether you're going to use external beam or implant radiation seeds, as you call them, I guess you call that brachytherapy, right? Right. We call that uh, brachytherapy in one of the settings where, again, we spoke about using it in the uh, for the gynecologic cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, in that situation, I'm working with gynecologic oncologists, and we have a tumor board, and we'll discuss all those things. And when it comes down to the sp- specifics of the treatment plan, I'll be working out whether you get the implant or not. But in general, my gynecologic oncology colleagues know a lot about radiation, and they mm-hmm. have a very good sense of what yeah, we'll be recommending. And again, we're putting together the team's game plan. Mm-hmm. Do you actually have to go into the operating room to, to insert these things? Yes, yeah, so that that procedure of inserting the seeds has been done traditionally in the operating room, but now we have um, a, a brachytherapy suite okay. or sort of mini operating room in our department where we can do these procedures for out, and in an outpatient basis, hmm. which is much more convenient for the patient. I they bet. don't have to be in a hospital bed. Um, Instead of staying in a hospital bed for two days, they come over the course of a week or two or three for individual treatments, usually five or six. And are the seeds left inside the patient, or are they removed, or does that depend on the actual setting? So in this case, the radiation seed is delivered by a machine, Mm -hmm. and the machine will basically allow us to will be, be able to treat the patient for whatever time frame, usually 20 to 30 minutes. Oh, I see. And then the actual applicator is removed, and the seed never touches the patient. It actually goes into an applicator. So the process entails putting a device in the uterus, in the vaginal canal, so that we can deliver the sources into that. I tell people it's like a little um, sort of conduit or straw, and the radiation seed goes inside of that, but never touches the patient. Well, things have really changed in the... 25 years since I branched off into uh, hematologic malignancy <laughs> and dealing a lot less, obviously, with, uh, yeah, with yeah, guys it, like you. you and, know. and well, and, and things have gone in a good direction, I think, in the sense that we're uh, hopefully having patients go through less in the way of hospital stays. Yeah. We don't want people lying in bed. We'd like them to be up and on their feet and do this. We actually use anesthesia for these um, procedures for patient comfort and safety. And I think patients are, are tolerating these types of treatments much better than the implants that we did in the hospital. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun because you got to wear sort of a few different hats and do a lot of different kinds of activities to help the different kinds of patients. Yeah, I think radiation oncologists, most of us have, especially academic doctors, we have one or two or three things that we treat and focus on. But even within those 
three disease sites, let's say you do, you know, lung and head and neck cancer, even within those specialties, there are sub-sub-specialties. Right. Some people know how to do the seeds. Some people know how to do different types of planning. So we get to wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, that's cool. Now, you were telling me uh, offline that you're studying some new ways to reduce toxicity from radiation. Do you want to speak about that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, again, one of our challenges as the radiation uh, oncologist is get enough dose into the tumor to, to kill the tumor cells while sparing normal tissues. And uh, I have actually a compound that we're running a trial with a compound called KD018, and it's actually a standardized herbal compound. And so far, it's proven to be non-toxic, and we've used this in gastrointestinal cancers. And there's actually a little uh, bit of history behind this. Um, our medical oncologists have used this with chemotherapy when treating different GI cancers. What we call GI cancers is colon, rectal, uh, stomach. Um, and what we're finding is that it protects the normal tissue, meaning the lining of your, your bowel. Hmm. And uh, that's very exciting because we don't have that many tools in our toolbox that are non-toxic right? Um, and don't interfere with the cancer therapy, but yet treat the you know, allow us to treat the tumor cells effectively. We did a, a very nice study with my colleague, Sally Rockwell, and we were able to show this in actually a nice mouse model where we irradiated their abdomen. And we looked at the mice who got the KD-018 and the mice who did not, and we were actually able to see... Um, by taking really slides of their GI tract uh, of their bowel and see how nice and healthy the cells were when you gave this agent, the KD-018, and how the cells in the mice who got the radiation without it were not as healthy. Well, it'll be incredible if that works out. Uh, so I wish you a lot of luck with that compound. And that, that's a compound that was developed, I, I believe, by chemists here at Yale. Is that that's right. right. Mm -hmm. um, we had a group called Phytoceutica, and they were, again, this was one of those nice entrepreneurial sort of Yale spin-off groups that worked very closely with us, and they had some really, really smart chemists that helped us develop this compound. Dr. Susan Higgins is professor of therapeutic radiology and of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.